In this edition of Hoopsology, Justin and Matt welcome a host on 1080 Defense, Danny and Dusty's out of Portland, Oregon, the co-host of Jack Ramsey's A Trailblazers podcast, Danny Meringue. We chat with Danny about the Trailblazers' goal of turning the page on the Damian Lillard saga. We also break down Scoot Henderson's early season struggles during his rookie year, and we discuss ways to improve the in-season tournament. Danny is always a great guest, one of our early guests during the pandemic, so it's always great to catch up with him. And now, Danny Meringue. We welcome back Danny Meringue onto Hoopsology. Welcome back, Danny. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate you. Thanks for coming on to the show. Really wanted to have you. Thanks for making the time. Just it's so appropriate just with everything that's gone down with Portland over the past, I would say, four or five months. So before we get into what's taking place currently with the Trailblazers, I believe they're three and four as the recording of this podcast. I want to just take it back to just of the big trade, of course, of Damian Lillard no longer in Portland. Can I what is just the overall sense of this Damian Lillard not being in Portland? Is it kind of what's the mood there? I don't want to put words, in, you know, in your mouth, but kind of what's what's been kind of the the sense there because he's just played a big part in that franchise's history. I, I don't think folks have necessarily moved on, but they moved past the trade, if that makes sense. Um, uh, the fan base is getting an education on what the difference is between a Damian Lillard level player and a non-Damian Lillard level player is uh, as the as the mm. reset, so so to speak, is uh, undertaken. Um, folks are shocked that a 19-year-old Scoot Henderson isn't as good as Damian Lillard day one. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what a top 75 player all time will do to spoil you for your expectations of certain baselines. Yeah. Um, but I think that their hearts are still, you know, holding on to Damian Lord, but their brains have moved on to this new iteration. Um, I still see a little bit of the, well, when Dame or if Dame, and it's like, okay, we're still doing this, huh? Okay. That's, that's fine. We'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, my personal thing is like, I was able to make a clean cut, so to speak, um, not because I wasn't attached, but because I was. Um, I, I talked to Dame throughout the entire process. Um, it was very weird uh, to be so up close to the entire ordeal and kind of know what was going on behind the scenes with, with multiple camps. And um, I don't ever want to do it again. Um, it was miserable. <laughs> it was it was a, the rough 90 days, uh, 89 to be specific. Um, and I hope I never have to like partake in one of those ever again. I don't know how the newsbreakers deal with that kind of, um, there's a word that I want to use, but I won't, um, that kind of stuff, um, that flies around in the background endlessly, um, trying to sort through what's real and what isn't, but now it's, you know, it's, it's quite literally the first reset the organization has had in, in the modern era. And it's, um, it's a weird spot to be. May I ask, what was so difficult and weird about it? We don't usually, from a fan's perspective, we don't really see just the, the trials and tribulations of trades from just some journalists from what they go through. So may I ask, from a behind-the-scenes standpoint, what was what was just so the difficulty? Because we heard, you know, all the things about Damian Letter wanting to go yeah. to Miami. Like, what was, from your perspective, what was kind of the difficult parts of that? Just knowing both guys, knowing yeah. Joe Cronin, knowing Damian Lillard, knowing them personally and who they are as people and the the business nature of it, no matter how much you cut out, like it cuts deep, you know, you, you know what both camps are kind of going through and talking back and forth. You understand the 
hurdles and the barriers and frustrations um, from all sides. And uh, there's so much that I'm hearing through the process that I just can't say. I mean, I, I could, but then I betray a lot of trust and, you know, I don't, then I don't, you know, kind of know and understand what's, what's really going on and to have that go on for literally 90 days or 89 days um, for three months um, with the amount of noise coming out of mouthpieces in Miami. um, It just got so uh, tiresome on top of like the emotional stuff of just like, uh, we're supposed to be detached from these people as journalists um, covering the team. If you're good at your job, you're not. And that's the whole, that's the whole part of this. Like that, it was my first time being in a, in something like this. And uh, I, I d- didn't like it to be totally honest. They, like I, I wrote a, God, a 4,000 word kind of write up from just kind of how I, wh- where I was in this whole process and how I saw the whole thing kind of unfold um, to try to give some kind of accounting of both sides and not even trying to, to rationalize both sides, just, how I saw things kind of come together or fall apart, depending on how you look at it. Um, And it's, I'm so much into like the basketball side of things that I don't like this stuff. Um, When it gets into the, when it gets kind of nasty and that's good, not because it's uncomfortable because I'm, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable in the, in the, the weirdness of, of not just sports, but of the world. But like when you know people just a little bit more. And so that part of it, it's, do not like, do not recommend, not fun. I just, before I pass it to Matt, I, I thank you for your candor. Cause I think a mm-hmm. lot of reporters, they tend to have that line. They, they tend to like, I don't know, shut their emotions off where they're dealing with these type of issues. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very refreshing for you to be you know, honest about that. So, so thank you for sharing that. Oh, I, I think that's, that's, that's a human response. And I think yeah. a lot of reporters, we, we don't see that. They're usually just, Oh, I'm just doing my job and there's nothing. It's just like, and the reality is they're not, and they yeah, have, exactly. they, they have biases and, and they yeah. have the inherent feelings. And like, I, I'm not a J school guy. Like, you know, that's not, that's not the world I come from. So whether I'm doing it properly and properly, I'm only doing it the way I know how to do it, which is just to try to, be as honest as I can through the process. Danny, one of the things that was so unique about this situation, I mean, other than a lot of factors being unique yeah. about this, I mean, a, a franchise <laughs> cornerstone for a long, long time, you're arguably one of the, certainly one of the greatest franchise players in, in trailblazer mm-hmm. history. But uh, there was a point where, you know, this deal reached, it, it seemed like Damian Lillard, because without a doubt, it, it seems like he cares about this franchise and this community. I don't think yeah. anyone would question that. Um, he has this moment of kind of second guessing and rescinding that trade offer. And then basically it's said by management, like we've we've crossed this point of no mm-hmm. return. Um, when do you think that that point was reached? Is it is it kind of we're tired of doing this dance the last few off seasons? It's it's time to move forward. Um, can you elaborate at all on on that situation? Yeah, um, I think that I think that Brandon Miller going number two overall was what did it. Mm-hmm. Um, if the draft is done differently and the Hornets take Scoot and Miller's there at three. Even if it's an uncomfortable sell, there's there's wiggle room in there 
for a Lillard, Simons, Miller, Grant. Do they find a way to get Aiton? You know, does that does that still happen? Because the Suns had brought Aiton to the Blazers at that point two or three different times. They tried they they, they tried to uh, trade Aiton to the Blazers on uh, on draft night. They they had discussions uh, at the deadline, and I believe the off season before that they they broached um, if not if not trade discussions talks um, because things were toxic in Phoenix as we all now know. Um, so does that does that make sense? Does that make Dame want to stay around? Does that rejuvenate things a little bit? Miller looks pretty good. Um, positionally, it makes sense. The second they took Henderson, and they had to. I mean, that's the the offers that were on the table for Scoot. From what I know, um, even even the biggest offers, you you have to squint to see the competitiveness for the franchise kind of going forward. It's not going to just be that move and they're ready. Uh, even their biggest moves, you still had to make one more move to figure something out at minimum, probably two. And I just don't know if they had the juice to do that. So in hindsight, the second Dane requests the trade. Yeah. But I think the second they took Henderson, that if you gave them both Drew Serum and by both, I mean, Joe Cronin and Damian Lillard, that was probably the moment. Um, because realistically, Damon Scoop can't play together. I mean, you're, you're seeing it right now in, in Portland with Scoot at 19 years old. Defenses are playing eight feet off him. Russell Westbrook gave Scoot Henderson the Russell Westbrook treatment on opening night. He, he went under everything, played eight feet off of him, uh, said, go ahead. And the Blazers had a hell of a time. Now, Anthony Simons is not Damian Lillard, but, I mean, what's Dame going to do? If he's got the ball and Scoot's off ball, what's the function there? If all of a sudden you're going to say, now Damian Lillard, you're going to play off ball with Scoot Henderson? Like what, how does that whole thing kind of come together? So if you're going to go to like the, the basketball side of things, it was probably after drafting Scoot Henderson. I think mentally, emotionally, spiritually, however you want to go with that. It was probably a couple weeks into the, after the trade request when things just got toxic uh, in the public, in the public sphere. Um, and I don't think it was personal. Um, I, I know Dame and Joe both very well. Um, they still have a lot of respect for each other, um, even as ugly as this got. And they're not bad people. So on that on that front, I don't think it was something akin to that. It wasn't some vindictive kind of thing. It was, I hate this line, but it what really was a business decision. And to be honest, I think it was best for both. And I mean, Dame, I know the, the Bucks and, and, and Dame and Giannis are still working some things out right now. I think he ended up in what is probably the best pass possible basketball place for him. So um, in that sense, I think that's probably, probably a roundabout way of when it, of when it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm sure, you know, it, it doesn't ease feelings on, on the Portland fan side, you know, to see him rescind that trade offer, you see like the care there. And then I think also, as you just mentioned, I mean, sending Dame to the Bucks is also kind of a kindness as well. I mean, he mm -hmm. could have potentially gone to the nets. We were hearing a lot mm -hmm. about, or places that wouldn't Toronto. be as yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't be potentially an instant contender as uh, everyone assumes the Bucks are, I think rightly. So um, you mentioned scoot, and, and kind of some of the early struggles, what are you seeing 
Now, we we kind of expect this, I think, with a 19-year-old point guard. He's very hyped coming out of the draft. I mean, I've, I've Justin and I talked about it a lot on our podcast, like how much we liked what we were seeing mm-hmm. from him. What are you seeing so far just watching Trailblazers games? Um, up until he rolled his ankle the other night or got rolled up on, um, the thing that you're seeing with him is the thing you see with literally every teenage point guard. It's mm. if you go back and look at Kyrie's first five or six games, go look at LaMelo's first five or six games, go look at uh LaMelo's first five or six games. Like you just look at at the list of guys that that have come through the league as teenage point guards and been like, here you go. Um, they all bomb really hard the first like 10, 12 games before they figure stuff out. Uh it's a very difficult position to play. Um the I wrote after they drafted Scoot. Um, the only players in NBA history who have been um, 19-year-old point guards who averaged 15 and 5 are Stephon Marbury, Kyrie Irving, and uh, LaMelo Ball. And what you think about when you see that, number one, there's only been 23 teenage point guards in NBA history. That's it. The smallest Okay. <laughs> Only three of them have had averaged 15 and five. We're not talking about earth shattering stuff here. We're talking 15 and five, mm-hmm. right? So Stefan Marbury maybe had one of the most elite explosive uh, steps could get literally anywhere on the floor at any point in time uh, coming out of Georgia tech. Kyrie Irving is maybe if not the best, one of the three best shooting profile guards to ever play the game. Um, and then LaMelo balls, six, seven, six, eight passing savant is probably one of the five best gifted passers in the NBA who has range up to 30 feet. Like, okay. What does scoot have? He has elite level athleticism. He does not have Derrick Rose athleticism. He does not have John Morant or Russell Westbrook athleticism. Those guys are 0.1.001% NBA athletes. They're freaks. They're freaks of freaks. He is not that kind of player. He is more akin to uh, young Jason Kidd. And I think most people will think of like Dallas Mavericks Jason Kidd with Dirk which is very different from New Jersey Nets, Jason Kidd, (laughs) who was an absolute athletic freak who pushed in transition with Kenyon Martin and Richard Jefferson and, and and fundamentally broke teams in the Eastern conference. Also a guy who could not shoot come in the league. And I believe Kidd has ended up top 10 in made threes by the end of his career. That's right. It was a a very long development process in his jumper. Um, Scoot is a guy who quite literally wants to pass more than he wants to shoot. And they kind of have to coax him to shoot uh, early on. His off the dribble shot making in general is very bad. Uh, it's very poor. It's very inconsistent. There's a lot of little things in his off the dribble jumper that just need to be taken down to the studs and built back up. Um, it's not broken. This isn't like Ronnie Brewer taking jump shots. Okay. Like it's not it, but it's like the inconsistencies are enough to where it, it throws him off quite a bit. Um his jump shot in general seems like it lends itself more to mid-range jump shooting than it does to three-point shooting. Uh, the way he gets his base under him in the catch and shoot is significantly different than the way he does off off uh, off the dribble. So you're seeing some variance in those things. And so um, he's trying to figure out how to shoot. I think I think he's shooting like nine percent from three right now. It's very poor, obviously. I think he's thirty shooting thirty-three percent from the field, if I remember right. And a lot of that has to do with poor three-point shooting and poor finishing. Um, I've, I've 
coined the general phrase that uh, his kryptonite in the NBA right now is very large white men. Uh, he has gone up against Walker Kessler, Yusuf Nurkic, Evita Zubac, and Jakob Pertl. Uh, and all of them have just nom, 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 gobbled up his shots at the rim because they're absolute behemoths. Scoot Henderson has not gone against bigs like this. Not only are they enormous, they're very good rim protectors or they're just massive humans who there's just places you can't go to. And if you don't understand how to change speeds, get somebody off balance, get to the other side, the things that NBA veterans have or guys who spend time in college for a few years and understand it's going to be rough. And those are all the things that have borne themselves out. And not a bit of this is surprising. So how do you think he's going to adapt from a fan criticism and a media criticism perspective. Because I think, obviously, I think things on the court yeah. will probably take care of itself. But, you know, I think mentally, that's probably the, the biggest hurdle for any athlete that's taking a ton of criticism and that might manifest itself, you know, later on. So how do you think he's dealing with just all the criticism so far? Well, there's so many external expectations, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> Poor <Yes. guy>. um, <laughs> he, he, so I've only been able to talk to him in this season, outside of preseason, twice now. Uh, because of the injury and then because they've been out on the road. Um, but just in talking to him through the season, he's he's built different mentally. Like he's he's an incredible worker. Uh, he's charismatic. He knows what to say. He believes in what he says. He's got that internal and external motivation. Like he doesn't need the external, but he, he takes it. Uh, and he has the internal. And I've, I've asked him about his shooting. And he's like, I believe that I can do this, this, this. And I, I don't think he's faking it. Um, but he had a a relatively decent game. I believe he ended up with 11, seven and four, 11.7 or seven assists, four rebounds um, on the road in Toronto. And it was the first time he started to show like a little flash of something. And there was a sense of relief. And he said something in the post game akin to, um, I wasn't very good, but I know the baseline I've set is so low that this looks good. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but um, but you could also see it in his face. It was getting to him. Yeah, he's 19, and he struggled out of the gate being a number three overall pick. It's okay to admit that that's a wrong. Like, like that's a that's a struggle for him. Like, there's a there was a picture from opening night of Russell Westbrook who had just stolen the ball from Scoot, <laughs> taking it and dunking. And in the background picture of Russell Westbrook dunking is Scoot Henderson with the biggest little kid smile on his face you've ever seen. Why? Because Russell Westbrook is one of his favorite players. And you can mm. see like the, I'm on the floor with my guy, my idol growing up. And this is really happening. It was like, yeah, it's going to take a little while. And that's entirely fine. Um, you look around. Yeah. Is Victor Wembanyama more effective? Yes. The seven foot five freak <laughs> of nature who can dribble past shoot, who's been playing professionally, leading teams, showing you all the things he can do is better. Yes. Chet Holmgren, who spent a year redshirting and understands how to travel, how to check in, where to go eat, how per diem, like all the stupid stuff that comes with being a rookie. That's done. He just goes out there and hoops. He knows the playbook. He knows his, his teammates. He's practiced with them. He, there's the relationships that he's trying to build are, are already there. So for all those guys, it's not surprising. You look at Asar, they're asking Asar to go out there and be Asar Thompson, which is, please, God, don't shoot, but do literally everything else. You look <laughs> at all the other rookies, and it's just like, yeah, yeah, the, the skill curve and the things that they're asking him to do, that's how this works. Playing that point guard spot, 
who are the other point guards out there? Keontae George? Like he's not even getting on the floor for the Jazz, really. Playing point guard and running a team is a very, very, very difficult thing. Doing so without ever having like like I know Scoot Henderson played the G League. The G League, I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate it, but there's not as much structure around it as the league kind of pushes out. And I think Scoot is realizing that, like, hey, no, I play in the G League. I, it's it's another step up. No, no. Every little thing that you do, a false step here, carrying a step too far here in, in, into the paint, not changing your speed at the rim. Like, there's, like, every little minute thing that you could possibly do. Every night, the best players are going to break you. And if you don't hone those things in, they'll humble you very quickly. And so I think that's the, the thing for Scoot that is, is going to be interesting is how he, when he starts putting together, how that skill curve takes up. Does it, you know, is it one of those things where it's like, oh, big jump and then fall back and then, oh, big jump and then fall back. And then, or is it a little bit more linear, which it's rare, but you do sometimes see, oh, and then they put it together and then you just see him kind of build those blocks up as things go. We'll let you go on this. Um, the play-in tournament's underway. Seen some positive reviews of the play on the court, mixed reviews of the courts, <laughs> the court design. Uh, what are your thoughts on the play-in tournament so far? It's success. Why? Because yeah. we're talking about it right now. And is it the best thing? No. Um, I was talking to some some league personnel about it, and they asked me kind of what, what I thought as far as um, how I would incentivize it. And for me, the way I would go about it is I would tier it. Um, if you're a, a team out of the playoffs, if you win the tournament, you get a 10 seed, whatever conference you're in. Whoever was the 10, sorry, that's how it goes. If you're a team that's already in the play-in, if you're, say, you're 10, 8, 9, what, 7, whatever it is, and that you get the top seed. You get the top seed in the play-in. You get home court all the way through. Uh, if you're a team already in, in that uh, top six, you get to play. You get to pick your first round opponent, like and of the top six. And I think that that's. I think there's ways you can incentivize it to where for every single team it matters. I've heard some people say, "Well, what about it's a guaranteed playoff spot?" Well, like, sure. What if Denver wins that postseason tournament and they get a guaranteed <laughs> postseason spot, and now they can be like, "Well, Jokic only needs to play like 30 games. We're good." And now they, they cut a quasi-tank a season, and now they also get a guaranteed playoff spot with a lottery pick. And it's like, no, you can't do that. Slow that roll. Um, so there's there's just interesting spots. And I think the other one is, is, as far as the team, if you're out of the playoffs and moving up, you get a chance to, to be in the playoffs while also maintaining your lottery pick. I think that's the one, like, you encourage the young teams to try to do something in one of the other tournaments, and then you kind of get this, we're playing with house money. Let's, let's, let's go be disruptive. You get your young guys some playoff experience in, in when you're playing with house money, I think you can get a little scary. And I think the one thing the NBA playoffs are missing is that on aggregate top seed wins. I, I, I want to say it's like 78% of the time, or it might even be higher. The last time I looked, it's an obscene number. Um, but if all of a sudden, what, like, what if, what if a, t a, a team wasn't supposed to be in the playoffs goes full Miami Heat gets hot because something came together and they 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 upset a first round opponent that isn't supposed to be upset and now the whole brackets turned sideways. That's pretty compelling stuff, and I think that's something the NBA is looking for is, is that they're missing some of the compelling uh, parts of the playoffs that 
really has become mo- not predictable, but pretty predictable. Man, I love those ideas. And I think when you look at a league that needs to build more and more rivalries, in my opinion, through mm-hmm. the playoffs, any mechanism where you get teams picking their opponents, I think automatically generates that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, totally agree. Danny, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you for joining us. Please let our audience know where they can find you on social media and then also all the shows you host and any other projects you're working on as well. Uh, yeah, you can find me across social media at Danny Morang, except for Instagram because somebody's still squatting in my handles at Danny Morang. Um, <laughs> Like five years of this stuff, man. Give it up. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you are uh, in in the Portland market, you can find me from noon to three on uh, 1080 The Fan. My co-host, Dusty Hera. Uh, if you want to, you can uh, go to 1080TheFan.com and also listen to us and stream us across. Or go to YouTube.com backslash 1080AMTheFan uh, and watch our live stream there for our radio show. And then uh, at Jack Ramsey's, our Jack Ramsey's uh, podcast is available wherever you get podcasts, uh, as well as uh, YouTube.com backslash at Jack Ramsey's when we do all of our live shows with my co-host Brandon Sprague. So, yeah, there you go. All of it. Awesome. Thanks, Danny, as always. Much appreciated. Hey, anytime, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to Hoopsology, presented by Boss Life. If you have comments or questions about this episode, please email hoopsologypod at gmail.com. Also, leave us a review on iTunes and follow us on all social media platforms.